Our sermon scripture text this morning is Acts chapter 13, verses 13 through 52. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, 
For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when Jesus saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me open us with a word of prayer. Jesus, we need your spirit to speak to our hearts and open our eyes and open our ears that we might receive what it is you want to say to us. Never let us forget that your word is not the word of humans, but it is the word of God. It is your word. And it is a living word, one that speaks again and again throughout the ages to every individual, bring us the knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we see him this morning. Pray this in his holy name. Amen. One of Marco's favorite kid books when she was a kid is a, a short book called Love You Forever by Robert Munch. Uh, now, this was produced in 1985, and apparently it's like a classic. I'd never heard of it before Marco bought it for Caleb when he turned like three. Uh, but apparently it's, it's, it's a well-known book, and it's become one of my favorites too. And if you're not familiar with it, it's a story of a mother and her son, and it's the various phases of her son growing up, begins with him being born, and she sings him this short lullaby as an infant, as a toddler, as a you know, primary school kid, as a teenager, and then as an adult. And the, the lullaby goes like this. I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. It's a mother saying this to her child. Doesn't matter how old you get, you'll always be my baby. I'll love you forever. I'm going to tell you, if you've ever read that as a parent, it is a tearjerker. Because you're reading it, and you're holding your little four-year-old, and you're imagining them growing up, and you're just like, like ugly crying by the end, and your kid's like reading it, like, what's well, a good story, but why is daddy, <laughs> what's going on? It, it hits you. It hits you like a ton of bricks. And if you haven't read it as a parent, don't judge. Maybe one day you'll understand. Great book. It's one of my favorites now, too. I only have one criticism of this book, and it's this. Uh, it's not true. The mother lies. She says, I'll love you forever. But she doesn't. Because one day she dies. 
She can't love her child forever because she is not forever. Now, you may be thinking, Mike, you're being way too literal and you're ruining a beautiful book, and I'm sorry. It is a beautiful book, and maybe I'm being morbid. But I don't think so because death is a fact that humans have wrestled with as long as we have records. Uh, We may try to hide it. We may try to put it on the periphery of our society, but it's there. And it presents all kinds of difficult, deep existential problems, such as it doesn't matter how many good things or how good things are for you in this season of your life. It doesn't matter how good it is right now. One day you will die and it will all end. Uh, Likewise, it doesn't matter how much love you've given or received. One day you will die and leave all of it doesn't matter how much you've planned for the future, how much you're prepared for whatever may come. One day you will die and all of your plans and preparations will be gone with the wind. Every great leader or reformer who's done great work in their society, in their city, in their country, all of them will one day die and they will not be there to lead and probably what they've accomplished will be lost. Every poet will one day write his last verse and, and he'll die. Likewise, every parent, doesn't matter how much you love your children, you'll one day die and you'll leave your kids. This is why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so fundamental. Not as an interesting historical event, but as a paradigm-shifting earthquake. Jesus is the only human who has ever lived who will love you forever because Jesus died but rose from the grave to never die again. And so when he says, I'll be with you forever, he's telling the truth. Jesus is the only king whose kingdom and power and glory will endure forever. Long after America's dust, long after whatever nations are powerful today are dust, Christ's kingdom will endure. Why? Because he just died, but then he rose from the grave never to die again. And so his kingdom, his authority is forever. Jesus is also the only mediator between God and man, the only one that can present our case before the Father, the only one that comes between us and God. Why? Because when he died, he took all of our sin and our judgment and our guilt, all of it, And he died on our behalf, but then God raised him. And so he lives forever as our advocate, our legal counsel, defending us. We always have one in our corner, forever, because Jesus rose from the grave to never die again. This is the central truth of Paul's sermon at Antioch of Pisidia. Jesus is the promised king who, because he died and rose again, he rules a kingdom that will never end. And he brings us forgiveness that knows no end. So our outline for us this morning, first point, arriving in Asia Minor. Second point, Paul's sermon, Jesus, the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. And then third point, an unstoppable gospel. Let's read the first uh, couple verses again with me here as we look at our first point, arriving in Asia Minor, verses 13 to 15. Now Paul and his companions, they set sail from Paphos and they came to Perga and Pamphylia and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and they came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. And after their reading from the law and the prophets, 
the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now, I, uh, as we go through these missionary journeys, I'm going to have maps to show us, because these are not just interesting stories, but they're historical events that happened. And I find maps interesting. So I have a map behind me, and it shows, if you remember, the first part of the missionary journey is they went to the island of Cyprus. There were two cities there that they did stops in, Salamis and Paphos. And it says that they leave Paphos, and they sail north to what is modern-day Turkey. And they land at a city called Perga, which is right on the coast of modern-day Turkey. But they don't stay there. They keep going. And it's about 100 miles from Perga to Antioch of Pisidia, where they stop. And it's also about 4,000 feet of elevation. So they have 100 miles of kind of hard hiking. And they're arriving in, by the way, the Roman province of Galatia. And so when Paul writes his letter to the Galatians, he is writing to the Christians who are becoming Christians in this missionary journey. And in fact, the letter to the Galatians is written only a few months after he makes his first missionary journey. And if you remember from Galatians, there's some, heady, there's some urgency in the, in the letter to Galatians. Paul begins Galatians 1, 6 with, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. And if you remember so much of what the Galatian Christians were struggling with is like, how does the church and the Christian relate to Judaism and the Old Testament law? And they were in danger of losing the gospel that we receive by grace through faith and beginning to add on all these Old Testament regulations. Well, as we see what the Jewish population is like in these cities, that begins to make sense of that continuing struggle in the Galatian Christians. So again, as we, as we read over the next chapter or two, we are reading the background for the entire book of the letter to the Galatians. Second thing we, we see, and again, this is just a detail given to us in chapter 13, but John, the cousin of Barnabas, leaves them. Doesn't tell us why, but it's clear, at least according to Luke's perspective later on, that he doesn't leave for good reasons. He abandons them. And that's just, I'm just pointing this out because later that will lead to a division between Paul and Barnabas. The first church split, you could say, in, in, in the New Testament. This is just worth pointing out. But it tells us they get to this town called Antioch, Pisidia. That's not the Antioch they set sail from. That's Antioch of the region of Pisidia. And they go to the synagogue. That was Paul's modus of, op- that, was how he, that was his missiological principle. He'd first go to the Jews. And it, and it gives us, interestingly, it gives us kind of an order of service for the synagogue. We have an order of service, right? We read scripture, we sing songs, we have confession of sin, pardon, greeting, prayer together, songs, sermon. We have an order of service and ancient synagogues did too, and we see this. They would typically begin with reciting the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They'd have readings from the, the law, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, readings from the prophets, and then they would have someone give up, uh, stand up and give a sermon. So they do here for Paul. They give readings, and they say, Paul, would, would you like to come up and give a short sermon on that? Kind of like if after I read, I looked at one of our interns and said, Jake, would you, would you like to come up and give us a word on what was just read? Uh, that's how they ran back then. I won't do that, because I think I would have trouble getting pastoral interns if I did that. In the, <laughs> if I did that. But this is the door that the Lord opens. Paul and Barnabas are in the synagogue. I mean, come on, rolling out the red carpet. Brothers, you got anything to say? Don't you wish your like, coworkers would say that to you? Like, anything you want to tell me about you know, church this Sunday? But this is the door, wide open door, and, and Paul drives a bus through it. That's our first point. It's a very short one, arriving in Asia Minor. This brings us to our second point, which is Paul's sermon. 
Jesus, the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. And we get this sermon by Paul. And interestingly enough, we only get three substantive sermons by Paul in the book of Acts. A lot of times uh, Luke will give summaries. But we have three kind of sermons in depth. And this is the only sermon that Paul gives to a predominantly Jewish audience. And so what we see is when, when Paul would go into the synagogues, we're getting an example of what those sermons would look like, how he would preach the gospel to the Jews who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And Paul's emphasis in this sermon to the Jews of Antioch and Pisidia is that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. He's the promised son of David who has come as savior to bring forgiveness. And in fact, what seems to counteract that claim, the fact that he died, is actually what made him king because he rose from the grave. And like a good Baptist sermon, Paul's sermon divides very nicely into three parts. And so in my second point, we're gonna look at the three points of Paul's sermon. His first point is an Old Testament background, this verses 16 to 25. And by the way, this is, a, this is a little bit more in the weeds text. It's gonna be really helpful if you have your Bible open and following along. Um, it's just gonna help you kind of picture it. So the first point is, is, is verses 16 to 25. He gives kind of an Old Testament background. The second point is the substance of his sermon, which is Jesus' death and resurrection fulfills Old Testament promises. That's verses 26 to 37. And then again, you know, like a good Baptist, he gives a call for response, an altar call, as they may have called it in the past, in verses 38 to verses 41. So his first point here, he gives an Old Testament background. Let me read verses 16 to 25 for us again. So again, they say, Brother, do you have a word of encouragement for the people? And so Paul stood up, motioning with his hand and said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what, do you suppose that, who do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Now the crucial part of this kind of brief Old Testament history of Israel is verses 22 to 23. It says, he raises up David, and in verse 23, of this man's offspring, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. So he kind of tells a quick history, and then he gets to David, and then he says, from David, God has raised up his offspring, which he'd promised, and that offspring is Jesus. Now, there is a specific promise that God made to David in the Old Testament that is the background for this whole sermon, in fact, for much of the New Testament understanding of who Jesus is. And so we're actually going to go look at that promise and read it in full because it's that central and that important. And it's going to explain what Paul means when he says, God has raised up this man's offspring and brought him as a savior, Jesus. So flip in your Bible, so keep your finger in Acts 13, and then flip to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
And if you don't have a Bible, use the Pew Bible. It's page 259 in your Pew Bible. But 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 to 15. I'm going to give you a second to flip there because it's going to be helpful to look at this together. Because this really is the promise that undergirds Paul's entire sermon. If you don't understand this, his sermon's not going to make any sense. And as, you know, writing or speaking to a Jewish audience, they would have known all of this. This would have been kind of fluent in their mind. But again, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 to 15, let's start in the second half of verse 11. Context for 2 Samuel 7, David is kind of in the golden era of his reign, everything is going well for him, and he asks God to build a house for God, or a temple. And this is God's response to David wanting to build a house or a temple for the Lord. This is God speaking to David. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now about this promise, there are parts of it that were fulfilled in David's literal offspring, his son, Solomon. So for instance, verse 13, this offspring shall build a house for my name. Well, that's Solomon. He, he was on the built the temple. Uh, likewise, you know, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. There were times when Solomon was disciplined. So there, there are parts of this that are fulfilled in Solomon, but there are also parts of it that were not fulfilled in Solomon, pretty clearly. Firstly, this, uh, whoever this offspring is going to be, he's described as, uh, in verse 14, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. Now, whoever this offspring will be, he will have a uniquely intimate relationship with God. Now, Solomon began well, but he ended pretty poorly. He, he compromised. His many foreign wives turned his heart from Yahweh. He was not a son to Yahweh. So that's not fulfilled in Solomon. But more obviously and more clearly, verse 16, and your house and your kind shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. That clearly could not have been fulfilled by Solomon because the moment Solomon dies, the kingdom of Israel breaks into civil war. And in fact, by the time Jesus comes and, and we have the book of Acts, there is no king over Israel who descends from David. That promise has not been fulfilled. And so what we have from this promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is that there is one coming who will be an offspring of David, who will be God's very son, and whose kingdom would endure forever. And so Paul comes to Antioch of Pisidia and he says, he's come. The offspring prophesied in the Old Testament who would heal all our hurts, who would bring an end to warfare between God and man. He's come and it's Jesus. He is the Savior. He is the King whose kingdom will endure forever. Now, before I move on to where Paul begins to unpack that more substantively in his second point, I just want to make a really important observation of Paul's history of Israel. He gives a short Old Testament background, and uh, he's describing 2,000 years of Israel history. A lot happens. Israel does a lot. 
But in Paul's retelling of it, God is the only one who does anything. Like when you, when you first read it, it doesn't stand out to you, but when you begin to look for that, you're like, oh my word, right? Uh, God of Israel, he chose our fathers uh, and he delivered them out of Egypt and he put up with them and he destroyed the seven nations of the land of Canaan and he gave them their land as inheritance and then he gave them judges and then he gave them Saul and then he removed Saul and God is one who raised up David and then God is one who has brought you the offspring of David, Jesus. God does everything. The story of Israel is not the story of these heroic figures moving the kind of events of history. It's a story of what God has done. How humbling is that? You know, in America, we, like, we have an interesting history, and I, lo- and I love America, and I'm patriotic, but when we tell our history, we're like, we're talking about George Washington, right, and Paul Revere's ride, and all these great men and women who've done things, and 2,000 years, and the only one who matters in this history is what God has done. It's a good reminder for us when the world has ended and time has ended, and the story of this time, our time is told. The only part will matter is what God has done. He's the one making the story. But Paul makes this startling claim. He tells these Jews in, in Antioch of Poseidia, the promised son of David, he's come. And he's Jesus. But there are two big objections that aren't voiced, but seem to be clearly be in the background. It's this. Okay, well, if Jesus is the son of David, who's promised, why did all the leaders in Jerusalem, the leaders of pretty much Judaism in general, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests, why did they all reject Jesus? And secondly, if he's the king whose kingdom will endure forever, why did he die? And we're listening to a, a, a comedian who is clearly not a Christian who was telling of a time when a Christian was trying to uh, share Christ with him. And he's like, I didn't want to like burst his bubble. But like, do you know how that ended? He died. It was funny in the moment. You gotta laugh at yourself sometimes. These are two objections. So Paul moves into his second point of his sermon where he answers these kind of unspoken objections. First, the leaders rejected him and Paul's response, let me read it first, verses 26 to 37. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of the salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers... Because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all those written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, and today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And therefore, he says also in another Psalm, I will, let, I will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So again, the leaders rejected him. Why would the leaders reject the son of David if Jesus is really that one? He says, well, his response is, even the leader's rejection, that was always part of the plan. 
Verse 27, those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, the leaders of Judaism, they didn't understand the Bible and they ended up fulfilling the very prophecies that they didn't understand by condemning Jesus. They acted on their own volition. They acted under their own desire for power and glory. I mean, why did the religious leaders reject Jesus? It's because they knew if Jesus is true, it's gonna affect their claim to power and influence. And they weren't willing to do that. But that was always part of God's plan. Again, they fulfilled them by condemning them. Verse 29, and when they'd carried out all that was written of him, Jesus being rejected by the leaders doesn't disprove that he's a son of David. It actually proves it. That was all part of God's plan. They were just fulfilling what God wanted. Why? Because when Jesus was put to death, God was able to raise him from the grave. And in doing so, begin to work death backwards, begin to undo that problem that every human has struggled with from the beginning of time. What do we do about death? the final end of everything. And in his resurrection, God could also install Jesus as his promised king. And this gets at the second objection. Well, if he's the son of David, why did he die? Well, again, that was part of God's plan so that God could raise him from the grave and begin his plan of salvation. And Paul kind of lays this out in three different Old Testament prophecies. And again, this is like we're getting in the weeds and it's a little bit hard to follow Paul's line of thinking, but he's, he's answering the question, why did Jesus have to die? Well, he died so that he would rise from the grave. And that itself was always the plan in the Bible. And we see this first in, in the first quote, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that's from Psalm 2. What he's saying is that when God rose, raised Jesus from the dead, That was God installing Jesus as the king whose kingdom will endure forever. And the reason it says that, because it's not always clear to us, the Psalm 2 was a royal psalm, which means it was about a king. And it was used, we think, in in ceremonies when they were installing new kings. And a king of Israel would enter in a unique relationship with God. They were supposed to represent Israel. And so they were a son of God, and that they were supposed to have a unique and special intimate relationship with God. Oftentimes they didn't. But that was the goal. And so in that ceremony, when they would install a new king and say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, it was a statement of saying, you are now the king. What Paul is saying is that that, has been, that was always a foreshadowing of Jesus, who was not just a son of God, but he was the son of God, who was intimately related to God in a way that was unrepeatable ever, because he was God himself. And that when Jesus was raised from the grave, that was God enthroning him as king. The resurrection wasn't just an interesting miracle. Wow, he was dead, now he's alive. It was God enthroning him as the king whose kingdom will endure forever. And we see this in Philippians chapter two. Verse nine, it says this great uh, poem about Jesus who, who humbled himself to the point of death But verse nine, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. That's king language. You bow your knees before a king. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. That's what the resurrection of Jesus did. That was God saying, you are my son. Today you have become the king, the promised king. And he continues with two other Old Testament references. One here is Isaiah 55, 3, which actually is the verse right before the one that Sean read for our um, uh, scripture of of, of pardon. 
But Isaiah 55 is a prophecy about the restoration of Israel. And part of this promise to Israel, 55.3, is that I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. What are those? Well, that's the promise that God made to David, that I'll raise up a son from your lineage whose kingdom will endure forever. And he's writing two or 300 years after that promise was made. And what God is saying is, even though Israel is now in exile, I have not forgotten my promise. I haven't forgotten what I promised to do, and I'm still going to do it. And then, and then the next quote is from Psalm 16. This one makes it a little bit clearer. You will not let your holy one see corruption. That's Psalm 16.10, a psalm by David. And clearly that's not written about David. A king was the holy one, an appointed one, because David died, and that's what he... So Paul says, for David served his purpose and he fell asleep and he saw corruption. And so again, Paul's saying that was pointing forward to the son of David who would come, Jesus, who because he was in the grave for three days and then rose again, his body didn't see corruption. And so he's able to rule a kingdom that will endure forever. So that's Paul's second point. So again, we have this introduction to kind of the Old Testament or Old Testament background. We have Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise made to David, that one from his descendants would come who would rule a kingdom that would never end. And he finishes here with a call for response in verses 38 to 41. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you. So what's, what's the call for response? Is Let it be known to you, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. Jesus is the promised king, the son of David, who offers forgiveness. Forgiveness from What? says, from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now, if you notice, he says forgiveness and freedom, and he kind of uses these interchangeably. In the Bible, forgiveness and freedom are related concepts. Forgiveness is to let something go, to be freed of a debt or an obligation. And so what are we forgiven? We're forgiven of everything that the law cannot forgive us of. Why can't the law free people from things? Well, the law can only lay out what is right or wrong. The law can't forgive you for breaking it. We have a U.S. legal code. It'll tell you, hey, you can't steal your neighbor's house. If you steal your neighbor's house, the U.S. legal code has no ability to forgive you for that. A judge has no ability, if he is just, to forgive you for that. He has to determine whether you're guilty or innocent. And so what was Jesus able to do? He was able to forgive us of everything that the law couldn't forgive us. Why? Because not only is Jesus the judge, but he was also the lawgiver. In Psalm 51, David says in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. Our sins are primarily and first and foremost against God. And so only God can forgive. That's what's being proclaimed. That's the good news. We were enemies of God. Uh, we like to use medical language. We're broken. We need healing. There's, and there's truth to that. The biblical language, though, is more fundamentally, we're not like sick people who need healing. We're rebels who need to lay down our arms, who have rebelled. Like, like we are, you know, we are one enemy. We're Hamas and God is Israel. We're Israel and God. And it's warring nation states. 
And we've thought that we can rebel against God. Insanity. And God comes to us. This is what's amazing. We've rebelled against him. And Jesus comes to us and offers us peace and pardon. And, and, and not just like, hey, I, I won't kill you, but you'll be in tribute for the rest of your life. He offers full pardon and inclusion in the family of God. He comes to us with his hands up, offering peace. That's what the forgiveness of sins is. And, and, and we see the intentions of Jesus. We see the love of Jesus and that on his hands are the nail holes for how he achieved our pardon, the cost of his own life. This is the good news that he says in verse 32, we bring you the good news that God promised to the fathers. The son of David was not who we thought he would be, but he was far better because he brought the forgiveness of sins that the law could never bring. But there's also a warning. And here he quotes from Habakkuk 1. It's funny, Sean and I did not correspond on this. and that he had, anyways. Um, but Habakkuk 1, it, it's where God prophesies that he is raising up the Babylonians to bring judgment on his people. Like you who say, oh, I can get away with it, it doesn't matter, I'll do whatever I want. And God says, no, 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 judgment is coming. And in context, it's obvious. Jesus comes to us and he offers us pardon because we're rebels. And he offers us pardon. But there's a warning. For those who reject this offer of pardon, there will be judgment. What Paul's telling the, the, sorry, the Jews at Antioch, that Jesus, the son of David, he rose from the dead. That changes everything. It fundamentally changes the course of history. It changes how we relate and understand God. Death itself has begun to work backwards. Sin and death are defeated And this Jesus, the son of David, he's also Lord. He rules over every square inch of this world and one day he's gonna come back and make his reign complete. That's that's Paul's sermon to the Jews in Antioch. And so our first point, again, arriving in Asia Minor. Second point, Paul's sermon, Jesus, the fulfillment of these Old Testament promises of the coming son of David, And finally, our third point, an unstoppable gospel. And here we see the response to Paul's sermon. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. And since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. 
but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So Paul preaches a sermon. And what's the response? Well, it's interest and then opposition. I mean, at first it looks pretty positive. People are begging. I have yet to have someone beg for me to come back and preach next Sunday. It's not too late. This could be the first time. That's usually a good sign. People are like, oh, please come back. And in fact, it seems like some of the interest was genuine conversion because Paul and Barnabas, when they speak to these who are urging them to preach again, they say, continue in the grace of God. It's a weird thing to say to someone who has not experienced the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so they experience interest and response, positive response, but also opposition comes pretty quickly. And this is in verses 45. When the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy, began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And so we see both, again, interest and opposition. And interestingly, you know, when it says the Jews began to grow jealous, it probably refers to the Jewish leaders, synagogue rulers, not necessarily just your average um, uh, Jew in Antioch. And why were these leaders jealous? And it doesn't tell us, but we can guess. You know, they, were the, they were the big shots, the religious leaders, the one you called rabbi. And here come these two strangers, and now everyone's running after them. And they're realizing, like the religious leaders in Jerusalem realized, this Jesus is real, this is gonna cost us our power and our honor and our influence. And so they, they work against Paul and Barnabas. Never underestimate how dangerous the desire for applause and glory can be. It can lead us to reject even Jesus himself. And this opposition against Paul and Barnabas eventually leads to their being expelled from the city. In verse 50, they're driven out. And that language is a violent word. It's not like, here's your 30-day eviction notice. Please pack up your belongings and exit the premise. It's like, grab you by the cloak and throw you out of the city, probably with beatings to follow. Embrace an opposition. Brothers and sisters, the gospel when it's preached in clarity and in power almost always, I don't know if I can say this as a law, but almost always brings both embrace and opposition. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, to some we are an aroma of death, but to others the aroma of life. The gospel of Jesus Christ, it will always draw some and it will repel others. Almost always, right? I can't, I can't make this a law. There's a lot of variables. But what that means is that the gospel that we believe, the gospel we share, the gospel we preach, if it only repels people or if it only draws people, it might be a sign that we're distorting something. It always seems to do both. But what's clear from our story is despite this opposition, the gospel itself cannot be stopped. The leaders of the synagogue are now against them. The leaders of the city are against them. Yet verse 49, the word of the Lord is spreading throughout the whole region. And in verse 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And you have, it doesn't matter that the religious leaders who had all of the platforms and all of the voice in the city, it doesn't matter that leading women of high standing, in fact, the civic leaders themselves are against Paul and Barnabas and the Christians. It doesn't matter that Paul and Barnabas are kicked out of the city. The gospel cannot be stopped I want to go back to, again, Paul's brief Old Testament introduction, and that God did it all, right? Uh, he's the one that chose Israel. He's the one that delivered Israel from Egypt. He's the one who gave him the promised land. 
In, in, in Paul's retelling, God is the only actor. Everyone else is just passively receiving what God has done. He did it all. That's the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is not about heroic individuals taking on their Goliaths, men and women of great faith doing astounding things that we can only hope to measure up to one day. That's not what the Bible is about. The Bible's about a God who comes after broken and weak and frail humans who can't do anything to deliver ourselves, and he delivers us. That's what the story of the Bible is about. And the New Testament is no different than the Old Testament. When we get to the story of the church, again, the story of the church, it's not about great men like Peter who have courage and conviction to look emperors in the face and say, you are a sinner. It's not about great men like Paul who have such creativity and innovation and plant churches around the, middle, around the Mediterranean world. It's about what Jesus through his spirit is doing and has done and will continue to do. The Bible's about what God does. And this, by the way, is why in Revelation, when it pictures heaven, it does not picture saints standing around, slapping each other in the back, congratulating each other for living such extraordinary lives. The picture is every saint on their face before the throne. Why? Doing what? Worshiping the lamb who is slain, Jesus Christ. And why is that? It's because he's done it all. Everything. He's accomplished it all. And so we're gonna worship him. Paul, right next to Jake, right next to Chandler, right next to Mike. Because what we've done isn't the important part, it's what Christ has done. This is what we see here. Again, Paul and Barnabas are kicked out of the city. If the story's about them, the story ends. But yet, how does it end in verse 52? The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Because Paul and Barnabas can be kicked out, but Jesus by his spirit is still present. This is a great encouragement. This is a great hope for us in our own personal evangelism, in our outreach as a church. Right? Like we are weak. We are unable. We are certainly unable to change a heart, to turn a leper spots, to melt a heart of stone. Oftentimes it feels like we can't even share the gospel in a way that doesn't make it sound ridiculous. We think, ugh, the best I did and that was it. Who would believe that? And yet Jesus is able to take our faltering words and make them drop like an atomic bomb in someone's heart. It's a great hope and encouragement when we struggle with sin. We're unable to fight the flesh that resides in us, the old man, the old woman that won't die and keeps rearing its ugly head. But Jesus is able, by his spirit, more than able. By his power, we're able to wage lifelong warfare against sin and the flesh and the devil. This is our encouragement when we approach the end of our lives. Some of us, that'll happen sooner than, some, than others, but all of us will die unless Jesus comes back. And who is sufficient to face death? Who's sufficient to make it through death on their own? The Bible's clear, we are dust to dust. Thanks be to God who raised Jesus from the dead. And that Jesus is with you always to the grave and beyond. Let's pray.
Jesus, because you've risen from the grave, you are the king who endure forever, and our hope is in you. I pray that we will find the forgiveness and the freedom that every heart longs for in Jesus. And may we lay down our lives before you as the king who's worthy of everything we have. To know one day we'll worship with brothers and sisters around the throne and nothing we've done, nothing we haven't done will matter. All that will matter is what Jesus has done for us Jesus, you've done in us and what you have done through us. And so we praise you and glorify you alone. Hallelujah. Amen.